This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. 2020 was one of the most seismic years in world history. What conclusions can we draw about where the COVID shock has left the planet? Listen to my chat with Adam Tews, professor at Columbia University and author of Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Peter Thalbarsson, Mia editor of Reuters Breaking News, global financial commentary arm of Reuters News. This week I'm coming to you from Hilversum in the Netherlands. For this week's episode, I sat down with Adam Tews, professor of history at Columbia University and a prolific author, to talk about his new book, Shutdown How COVID Shook the World's Economy. I last talked with Adam a few years ago following the publication of his previous book, Crash, a sweeping overview of the 2008 financial crisis and its aftermath. I didn't expect him to be returning to the same themes quite so soon. This time, we discussed how the global pandemic of 2020 brutally exposed the weaknesses in our interconnected and globalized system, but also uncovered some pockets of encouraging strength. Adam explained how economic shutdowns prompted one-time fiscal conservatives in Europe and the United States to unleash gushes of government cash how long-standing principles of free trade and free markets were thrown out the window, how central banks once again rode to the rescue, and how relations between China and the United States deteriorated from mere trade war to something much more serious. We also talked about whether these shifts are permanent and explored his view that the pandemic may be something of a dry run for the crises the world is likely to face from climate change. I found it a fascinating discussion. I hope you will too. Adam Tews, welcome to The Exchange. Pleasure to be here. Good to have you back. And maybe I should start with, with what may seem like an obvious question um, uh, about, about this book. With COVID, countries like Australia and New Zealand are still effectively shut off to the world. Large parts of the developing world have barely begun to vaccinate their populations. Isn't it way too early to be trying to tell the story of this crisis or draw conclusions from it? So, so at some level, at some level, of course, you're right. It is, it is premature to write anything like the definitive history of the crisis. Um, but the book makes use of, a, of a, a striking coincidence, which is that 20th of January is the date on which Xi Jinping in Beijing in 2020 announced that China was confronting a public health crisis. And it's also the day exactly a year later in which um, Joe Biden was inaugurated as the president of the United States. And and that is really the frame of this book. This is this is not 
going to be or pretend to be the, the definitive history of the COVID pandemic. What it is really is a, a study of the politics, the geopolitics, the economics, the finance of 2020. And that moment between the Chinese public announcement that the world was facing a huge problem and the resolution of the American political crisis, which by the end of the year, of course, was preoccupying us almost as much as the pandemic with, with the inauguration of Biden. And, and that's the, the frame for the book. I am horrified, just as you are, by the fact that we are by no means on top of the pandemic. And the book tries to do justice to this by pointing to the unresolved issues in the production and distribution of vaccines in particular as one of the great questions facing the global community. That was already evident in the spring of this year, which is when I was finally putting the manuscript to bed. And unfortunately, over the summer, with the vain appeals from the IMF for a really large scale and adequately funded program, the most pessimistic diagnosis, and my diagnosis is pretty pessimistic, has only been confirmed. So uh, that's my justification. It's also a much shorter book than I think I've previously written. So the investment of time in getting to grips with that 12 month period is not quite as huge as 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 was the investment of time that was required to read Crashed, which was a bit of a whopper. It was. Yeah, well, that's true. Although I have to say you do. I mean, just one of the things I was struck by reading it, that the just the the scale and of, of and the and the the complexity and the diversity of things that happened in 2020 is really quite staggering. I mean, I think even even if you were sort of following it day to day, I don't think even reading the book, you sort of come back and come across things that I hadn't even really realised had happened at the time. Oh, that's How that's you... really good to hear because. <laughs> As I do think that is one of the functions, you know, it's a very modest project. It's just to simply, okay, let's just spend a minute sitting down and trying to remember everything that happened and reminding ourselves that it really did. And in that sequence and that compressed, by which we mean, you know, a really existential crisis of American democracy, a massive intensification of hostility between China and the West to a completely new level. The pandemic, which was itself world shaking, a huge shock to global financial markets, including real tremors in the US Treasury market, climate crises galore, which culminate in a huge acceleration of the decarbonisation agenda across the world. And this is just the beginning, right? One could go on and on and on. This isn't taking the national stories of the crisis in South Africa or Brazil. So the book is attempting, the phrase I pick up on is this phrase that Jean-Claude Juncker started using in around about 2015, which is polycrisis. Um, this idea that the, our problem is in a sense, the intersection of these dynamics, old things, very familiar stuff, geopolitics, the problems of democracy, the instability of finance. I mean, that's 19th century school book history kind of issues intersecting with things like the geopolitical power shift between the West and China, a world historic event that you can measure on a 300 year timeline. And then the great acceleration, which is this epic fundamental transformation in the relationship between what is it like 7.8 billion humans, roughly speaking, and the natural envelope in which we live, which we think is going to dominate the next 20 to 30 years and then ongoing. So 2020 might be the moment when those things really for the first time cross crash, right? This is a gigantic sort of uh, multi-car wreck. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was also struck reading the book by you know, what seemed to be a sort of a series of of paradoxes almost. You know, you have this, this sort of failure of of governance really 
uh, which but which then leads to massive fiscal stimulus and support for all kinds of industries being done in real time. Basic failure of countries to protect the health of their population, but then the incredibly rapid development and, and deployment, at least in some countries, of, of vaccines. Almost sort of, you know, innovation coming out of failure. I mean, is that, I, I sense that your interpretation of it is probably a bit more pessimistic than that, but, but how would you sort of think about that? I think striking the balance is the key, and I think it's a new way perhaps of defining our politics going forward. We've seen this already with debates about climate change, you know, the range of sort of extinction, rebellion, apocalypticism on the one hand, rather blithe, um, um, sort of technocratic uh, managerialism, utopian visions for global carbon markets, and then just flat out techno modernism, which says, you know, if we just had enough atomic power stations, we'd be fine. And I think in a sense, addressing 2020, we, we have to stand back and sort of shake ourselves down in a similar way. Like, where do we fall out on this? Because certainly at one level, you know, in terms of the socio sociological political management of the crisis, I think it's very difficult to find any winners. I mean, you know, maybe South Korea at a pinch, but I think they really got very lucky. Um, but their reactions were quick and timely. The Japanese definitely just got lucky. Um, but in the, in, since then, it's been a bit attritional, right? The East Europeans, who looked like they were doing well, have ended up catastrophically badly off in the in the in the in the later waves. So there's there's that failure, and on the other hand, there are then these technical interventions and extraordinary high speed development programs, which we again just didn't think were possible, like the vaccine development programs, and not just the famous mRNA ones, but the entire suite of vaccines, like Sputnik V looks like it's a really good vaccine, for instance, which no one really rated. And the Russian test procedures were inadequate and politicized. But it, I think it's even better than AstraZeneca in the, in, the, in, the, in the experience in the Gulf, for instance, where it's been used. So that's a huge you know, sign. So what I try to do in the book is to is to pull this together. And I think the conclusion at that level is a little sobering, because I think what we've learned is that our soft tissue, as it were, the socio-cultural, political mobilization abilities of the Western states, and I include in that emphatically, say, the significant emerging markets of Latin America, the Brazils, the Mexicos of this world, are quite weak uh, and inadequate and contentious and, in fact, divisive in various ways and ungenerous and incapable of generating large scale responses. But we, on the other hand, have two other experiences, the science one on the one hand, and on the other hand, the scale of fiscal and monetary policy response, which are empowering. And it's not for nothing that, you know, the modern monetary theory more of the entire kind of left um, excitement around the possibility of monetary and fiscal policy came up in the way that it did last year losing politically with Sanders and, and Corbyn, but nevertheless powerful, even in the markets where people are, you know, as, as we all know, there are a significant cohort of MMT addicts because it has this Janus faced quality, you know, failure at the level of politics and social organization and rather spectacular capacities for crisis management at the at, on the other side. And, and unfortunately, I do think it has a sort of top-down kind of resolution where the where the where the juice is where the capacity for crisis management is tends to be in the labs it tends to be in the technical staffs i mean you know the bank of england was doing qe from people's loft bedrooms they centralized the thing and, and nevertheless ran a gigantic bond purchasing program um 
And the question, of course, is how you then put those two things together. Are we really just going to gamble, in a sense, on a series of technocratic fixes? Uh, if we have to, you know, God love them. Like, they're our silver bullet. I, 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 we shouldn't, as it were, we, you know, we, you've got to, we've got to take what the game gives us in terms of managerial capacity. But, but I think that is one of the really serious questions for Western states going forward. Is that really going to be our answer? Yes, and obviously that that also plays into the thing you raised later about, which I come back to. I think um, uh, about the sort of the environmental challenge, the bigger environmental challenges that we may face. But just 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 sticking with twenty twenty, though. I mean, I mean, there has been this temptation almost from the very beginning. I think people to to, to declare it a sort of a a, 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 a paradigm shift, a turning point, in some way. You know, generally. In the direction of, of of whatever it was that they were already arguing before they before they'd heard of COVID nineteen, um, and you make quite a compelling argument. I think that it's it was it's basically more of a desperate attempt to preserve the status quo. You had yeah. the straight line about I think none of the politicians who voted for huge spending had had planned to change society. You know before before this came along, but I also wonder that the, the fact that this has happened. Sort of does have quite big shifts and does sort of change the argument on a, on a lot of these fronts. So, I guess I sort of wonder how do you how do you sort of think about those two forces uh, working against each other, and, and particularly as we sort of move on from this crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I, I describe it as a sort of Frankenstein politics. You know, it was all bolted together in a bit of a hurry, and the seams and the stitching are pretty obvious, and there is a bolt sticking out the side of the brain. You know, uh, or Daniela Garbo, the great, you know, people may know from finance Twitter, the, the fantastic macro finance uh, uh, maven describes this as a revolution without revolutionaries. As a historian, I think back to Bismarck and Cavour, those late 19th century figures, you know, who had that cliched phrase about how for things to stay the same, everything has to change. And I think that actually quite neatly encapsulates the position of central bankers like Christine Lagarde, who is, you know, remember, it's well worth remembering, a conservative politician first and foremost. But that, of course, is not the kind of central banker that she's become, let alone Jay Powell, who was like a flat out Republican pick. And, and look at the sorts of things he's had to do. So I think that's a key element of this crisis was a sort of adventurous innovation with ultimately conservative purposes. But A, I mean, I think the question for conservatives as it was in the 19th century is like, how realistic is it to imagine that things can ultimately remain the same? And my answer would be just, look, there's really no reason to think they can at all on any dimension. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, how do we respond? I would entirely agree that in a sense, inhibitions have fallen. We have discovered that we can do things. But I love this quote from Keynes, which is, I may be paraphrasing, but it's essentially words to the effect that we can afford anything we can actually do, which in the first instance, as you say, is kind of empowering. Well, hell, amazing. look at the, all the things we could imagine doing. Energy transition, social justice, racial justice in the United States. Biden's agenda in his inaugural speech was very much along these lines. But one of the things about losing the budget constraint is that you also lose any convenient excuse. The politics then becomes pretty bare knuckle because it's, well, if we can afford it, do we really want to do it? There's no way of avoiding that question. It becomes a question of just simply political decision making and technical capacity and technical capacity. That envelope can be shifted. We've discovered with things like Operation Warp Speed if we're willing to put the resources and the political initiative behind shifting that. So then the whole question becomes, in some meta sense, fundamentally political. Now, there may be material constraints out there that we can discover. And, you know, part of our anxiety is that precisely climate is one of those. 
But in a sense, the force of this is if you take away things like central bank independence, you know, the worry about 2% inflation and long run inflation expectations, if they're not there to hold you in check, as we you know, quite reasonably think that probably they're just not really the pressure they used to be, well, then how do you decide what you're going to do? And, and I think that's also a way of understanding the intensity of some of the politics, because once, say, free trade is fair game, as it has become in the United States now. You won't find a single politician who will, who will sign up to the idea of free trade as a principle that we ought to abide by. Pragmatically, if it's good for America, maybe, but that's the only reason to do it. If you open that up, then all sorts of stuff can walk in. You know, it could be driven by a labor agenda. It could be driven by an anti-Chinese Pentagon agenda. We could suddenly decide that an entire class of objects like microchips can no longer just can no longer be traded freely unless the Pentagon gives a green light, which is effectively what happened. You know, companies in the Netherlands are being gently told that really it would be a terrible idea if they sold their absolutely unique, world-beating, irreplaceable chip-making equipment to clients that America doesn't approve of. And it's not even clear where that even computes on a WTO kind of horizon. Like, you know, and, and in any case, it's totally irrelevant because you paralyzed the WTO's dispute procedure. An earlier president did that. So you see what I mean? It, it opens this horizon, which is very disorientating and potentially unstable and extremely contentious. Yes, that's a very, um, that's a very good way of putting it. So then if, you, if, you, if this then is basically been... I mean, it's not a dry run, but a sort of a, a, a test test drive, maybe for a system that is going to face use. Yeah, warm up, pre warm up, warm -up exactly. Yeah, over for, Yeah, for for for, it might for, be the for theme is coming back louder next time with drums. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and particularly, I mean, you talk about you talk about the environment. I guess being the sort of the environment, climate change being the big one. It's going to potentially test all of this a lot a lot further. Then, what sort of you know what what kind of is, is there anything that, that, can, that can be done differently, given the constraints that we face, do you think, in terms of preparing? Mean, at least there is, you think there's a moral argument or, or a stronger moral argument to say we need to be best prepared. We can't do the equivalent of closing down the, the, uh, the pandemic responsive unit, you know, kind of um, it, because there hasn't been a pandemic. We have to actually take preemptive action. We can spend lots of money, hundreds of billions of dollars to transition away from fossil fuels because... The benefits of doing so will be will be will be worth a lot more. I mean, does it sort of does it help us in that sense? Do you think? I, I know exactly why you said it, but I, I I puzzle at our tendency to say things like, and then in the background there's this bigger thing called climate change, because you have to go pretty far out on the curve of climate change disasters in the modelling to get to one that delivers a twenty percent shock to global GDP in a space of three months. That's part of the problem, right? Bill Nordhaus has gotten himself into terrible trouble with the climate left, because once you discount most of the climate economic damage models, they're just not big enough to warrant action, right? If you use that kind of conventional modeling technique. So people say, no, you've actually got to introduce the possibility of disaster. Well, a disaster for the global economy looks like last spring. 3.3 million people working under various types of restriction, 1.6 billion people furloughed from education with huge and irreparable loss to human capital, a 20% fall in GDP, a near total interruption of global trade. What else do we want? Like, you know, that's it. Like, and, and I've been in meeting after meeting in which people have said exactly that. So, you know, Brexit's a structural problem, climate's a structural problem, and then there's the recovery from the pandemic. And it's like, 
hang on, what about the pandemic being a structural problem? Which is what the envirologists and the epidemiologists have been telling us for 50 years. And the thing about pandemics, unlike climate change, is that the spin-off from climate change is going to be terrible, obviously, and it's going to multiply, but it's generally understood as being localized effects, right? So huge, massive storms in the Indian Ocean, or like we're seeing Ida now in, in Mexico, or Kim Stanley Robinson's you know, nightmarish vision of India under a, under a heat dome, which kills 10, 20 million people. But you and I know that in terms of the impact on the global economy, 10 to 20 million people dying in India, as absolutely horrendous and unfathomable as that is, if they're not infectious, it does not create a major dent in global GDP. I mean, that is a horrifically cynical thing to trade, but it is clearly the case that its impact on global GDP will be far less than a sequential shutdown in China, the EU, and the United States, which is what we saw last year. Right? So that it's it. It's arrived. It's with us already. And we, you know, we did these giant fiscal and monetary policy interventions, and they have huge impact on balance sheets. Just look at the central bank balance sheets, just look at the government debt levels of all of the advanced economies. <laughs> That's with us now. And the next time it happens, we add to that. And, you know, if you're relaxed about that, then, you know, you're speaking my language. But we know perfectly well that very large parts of the political spectrum are absolutely profoundly uncomfortable with that as a horizon, which will become a major source of contention. So I'm like, I think we, you know, basically I think the environmental problems we need to focus on are climate change one biodiversity loss or biodiversity multiplication and we should take this as an instance of biodiversity multiplication pollution and possibly soil erosion those are like the four things that are going to really devastate us and this is not to say we should not focus on climate we should just be clear about the fact that it's just one of the monsters that is coming to totally destabilize our world faced with that and and some of them will come speedy quick like you know the thing about climate change is we think of it in terms of years in decades even even if it spins off effects those are a matter of you know localized damage temporarily we all know how a pandemic works and we're not done with it right we're in year two of this and we we know that global travel all of those things are not yet fully recovered by any means like trade isn't anyway so how do we address this I despair, I have to say, of large scale global political compact type solutions, not because I don't find them attractive, but because I feel I need to check my prejudice for thinking they're attractive and then check them against the realities. What I think we need to focus on is, you know, the networks that have worked and build on those, amplify, make them more intelligent, more flexible, more democratic, more open. And, and one of those and the one that you know folks like us spend most of our time perhaps thinking about is finance and central banking and it's terribly top down we know it reinforces inequality in certain ways but we know the alternatives are even worse which is why we keep going back to it as a mechanism but i think we need to be thinking very hard about how that becomes a less crisis inducing inequality inducing mechanism for crisis management and we need to multiply others along those lines. And obviously the most promising and the new one is, is global public health investment. And, and I simply f do not understand why all of the sophisticated states in the world, but we need it also to happen in the big emerging market economies are not hell bent now on multiplying serum institutes, right? We need, we need lab complexes like the ones that produce the, the vaccines. And then we need six serum institutes, each with a capacity of a billion doses a year strategically located, which will generate jobs. This is great work. This is upskilling. This is transfer of technology. And it is clearly 
you know, just essential for us to be able to manage these so that we can get the timeline between the next epidemic and a universally available good vaccine down from nine months or 12 months to three months, which is not entirely unreasonable. We know how quickly this thing was sequenced. We should then immediately start 50 research programs. We should then immediately tool up all of our six serum institutes. And this is a project which is expensive, but it's trivial by comparison with the costs. You know, what would it cost? A couple of hundred billion dollars to build this. And this is not money poured into the ground. This is, these are fantastic jobs for people doing incredibly highly skilled things, which are an expression of the best that the human spirit has to offer. This is molecular biology and science and highly sophisticated manufacturing that you can do. And India has demonstrated the capacity to do it. So if India can do it, Tanzania can do it, South Africa can do it, Peru can do it. Everywhere which has got you know, basic infrastructure and the basic elements of a decent modern education system can provide the workforce and the skill set necessary for this. And we should, this should be the highest priority. It's very difficult to imagine anything we could spend money on that would in future be a better type of insurance policy because it generates immediate benefits you know, straight away because these people can make other vaccines. They can be doing malaria. They can be doing HIV mm. at the same time. You can flip these capacities back and forth. So, you know, that that for me is I mean, there's no reason to be pessimistic about our capacity to to respond if we're willing to think at that scale. And the, the World Bank in 2050, God love them, did have this agenda of billions to trillions which is right. That's exactly what we need to do. We've gotten over the sticker shock of a trillion. We now need to embrace that, figure out where the components are. We know what global GDP is, so there's no reason to be panicking about this. And, you know, Larry Fink and people like that have made all of these helpful suggestions of how they know like the IMF and the World Bank to backstop all of this private lending. There's, there's a whole bunch of very obvious political design issues with that kind of proposal, who carries the risk, who gets the benefit, so on and so forth. But that we need to get to that kind of scale is just self-evident after this crisis, right? And and um, it's within our reach. Um, yes, yeah, so that, that's a good point. And I guess that would be an, that would be an interesting sort of test to see of see what kind of response comes out of it. I just want to just fo focus in a bit on the central banks, which, which as you say, we, we both spend quite a lot of time thinking about. And, and I guess if, if there are any kind of heroes in this book, then probably they're the closest thing there is, particularly the Fed, you know, <laughs> using the, uh, using the, using the, the 2008 playbook. I mean, obviously, there have been, there have been vast steps have been taken. And there is this massive question about how, if ever, they will ever be unwound. But I also wonder, just thinking particularly about what about the types of interventions that were made in financial markets, and I guess maybe maybe recalling your previous book about the 2008 crisis. You know, the 2008 crisis was was, was a crisis of banking. There were a load of the banking system was bailed out. There were a load of reforms of the banking system, which pushed a lot of activity into financial markets. Which then you could say the banking system withstood the test much better this time, but on the other hand. The financial market seized up and had to be supported. So just thinking thinking about that continuum for the last whatever it is, 10, 12 years, have, have they just do you think they've just moved the problem somewhere else and now they have to now they've created another load of moral hazard that, that potentially could get worse if not addressed? Yeah. I mean first thing I'd say is that I think, you know, insofar as I was going to give prizes to central bankers, it would be the ECB rather than the Fed, because the you know, the Fed did its thing on a gigantic scale. 
and it was surprising because it was Powell who was you know reckoned to be a bit conservative and a bit colourless really as as a Fed leader compared to the preceding super wonks. But um, the ECB changed its spots, right? I mean, the ECB yeah. acted like a grown-up central bank with no inhibitions and has done what was necessary. I mean, there was a wobble, obviously, um, mm. one, but, and it's also a new European politics with people like Isabel Schnabel, you know, playing an incredibly constructive German-accented role. And, you know, with her, we finally have a German who could be a credible successor in due course to, you know, and that's been a huge problem that the only obvious Germans were people that would be systemic risks for the Eurozone fundamentally. So that's a huge step forward. But with regard to this bigger issue of yours, I think that's probably right, right, that there's this displacement. But I would, but I would, given my kind of rather, you know, dynamic view of history, I would say it's not just, right, if we've done that, that's, that's something. Like, I mean, imagine, 20, imagine March 2020 with, for sake of argument, Bank of America in trouble. Like, no one needs that. Like, no, really, no one needs that. Like, having forced the banks to, you know, equip themselves with adequate capital adequacy and buffers is a huge step forward. And sure, then all of a sudden, what that means is that we're going to have risks in, you know, in various types of, of, of fund. And what we didn't realize is that those risks might be large enough to spill over into the biggest market of all, the treasury market. And that's a huge problem. But it's also one for which we just have the simplest solution in the world, but given that it's the treasury market and it's government IOUs and, you know, you, you, you do what the Fed did, which was buy 5% of them, you know, in a matter of weeks, about a million dollars a second, 80 plus billion a day. And that calms the market down, unsurprisingly. I mean, if you also provide, you know, these huge repo facilities to enable people to hold them on private balance sheets. Like, these are really easy problems by comparison with running a shutdown, lockdown and convincing recalcitrant people in Louisiana to socially distance, like fixing this problem is almost trivially simple because it can be done, you know, a little bit of advice from lawyers helps. And otherwise, it's basically just a technical artifact. And you just, you know, you, you, you set up a bunch of new bank accounts and, and flick a bunch of digital money around. I mean, I don't mean to be flip about it, but, but it does have that quality. And of course, if you don't do it, it unleashes a spectacular chain reaction of disaster. But it, but it is not, in the first instance, a hugely difficult engineering problem, which is why they could scale it up. I mean, it's almost an order of magnitude, if not larger, bigger than the 2008 program. And it didn't, you know, it didn't barely cause a ripple, that transition, because you just increase its quantity. Uh, did they create more moral hazard by doing so? Almost certainly, yeah. I mean, clearly. And the extension of these sorts of guarantees to huge segments of the private credit market uh, were, was just dramatic. But you do have to remember the circumstances. I mean, the situation in the US in March and April last year was like nothing I ever imagined I would live through. I mean, those Thursday morning, 8.30 a.m. data releases from the from the labor offices, you know, with that one week where we had 6.5 million people signing on unemployed in a week. Now, we know that the unemployment crisis in India and China was every bit as bad. We think Indian unemployment actually reached 25 percent, which is not what we got to in the US. Um, but for the US, I mean, that New York Times front page, which was just the graph, mm. it was it was jaw dropping. So, yeah, sure. Middle, you know, you know, uh, can do we on top of that want a meltdown in, I don't know, you know, REITs or, you know, one of these other complex structures which are uh, sitting in the background here? No, 
full stop. You just want to take that off the table. And we know that Powell, you know, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a benign conservatism. It's a one nation conservatism, a sort of, but he was clearly profoundly and personally concerned about the just historically unprecedented shock to the incomes of the bottom 40 to 50% of the American income distribution, which were, it's as though the virus targeted their work, right? It targeted all of the low skilled person to person interactions. Um, and, um, and, you know, and it's completely legitimate, I think, in that instance, just to press every button, pull every lever, put your foot on the gas, just deliver whatever monetary impulse you can and worry about the consequences afterwards. In practice, they didn't need to do much. We all, we know, we know they didn't actually buy much, right? But, but, but that isn't to deny that the spillover effects in the markets have been gigantic and they're ongoing and they're still doing it. I mean, remarkably, the Fed is still buying, including including mortgage-backed securities, um, in a in a situation where the you know the real estate market in America is running very hot. Um, yeah. It's. Um, it, it indeed multiplies those risks. It will enhance inequality, but you just always have to ask yourself, what is the alternative here? Yep. No, I think that's right. Whatever it takes again, I think, as you said. It was. So, so if I can just come back to you, something you talked about at the beginning, which was sort of, you know, as you said, there were these sort of these, these pockets of sort of technocratic innovation the central banks we talked about sort of the, the, the vaccine, the, the scientists developing vaccines and others. And the question really being whether you can sort of, I don't know, sort of democratize those processes or make them more sort of democratically accessible or over, overseen by more a greater democratic process or something. What, can you talk a bit about how you sort of, how you think about it? And then I guess the other question I have thinking about that sort of framework is, is how do you look at China Mm-hmm. If you if you think about those that mm-hmm. tension, I mean we saw you know we saw the potential risks here in the U.S. I mean and I thought this problem from two zones. One is as it were the eurozone, and the other one is really the U.S. as the two great laboratories for these tensions. And what we saw in the eurozone is as I think in a sense the best possible outcome. And I am a cheerleader for Europe, and I'm a you know die in the wall, British English European, but. You know, they did not actually disappoint expectations in 2020. Um, mm. Saying quite a lot, and and it looked really bad in March and April. I mean, it looked catastrophic. In fact, um, it really looked a little bit like 2011. Uh, and then something shifted, and it shifted between we know it shifted in Frankfurt in the ECB, it shifted in Berlin and in Paris, and the balance of political forces shifted very dramatically. And they 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 salvaged out of that a truly complex package. It's not big enough, you know, I have all of my usual Keynesian quibbles, but it's remarkable in that it's, you know, it's anchored in Brussels, it's focused on on digital and green, and it actually includes rule of law conditionality. I mean, it's kind of an amazing package. So that for me is a gold standard. The problem, of course, is it's underdimensioned, it's not big enough, which which is non, you know, a major problem because the scale of the changes is huge. So if you make your answers too small, you're not understanding the change. But that, for me, is an example of how this can go right. In in the U.S., we saw you know two options. I mean, one is, as it were, the the insulation of the Fed to just get on with its business. I mean, a lot of us, I'm sure you'll remember, but you know, we used to. I think maybe you and I actually discussed this. Like in the first wave of concern after Trump was elected and the Republicans got control of Congress, was that 
This would disable the United States as a global financial hegemon. It would not be able to do the global stabilizing stuff that since 2008 we've known as swap lines was like the big thing that we all focused on. And I literally remember having conversations in the IMF with people there about whether or not we thought that Congress would allow the Fed to do a swap line system. And hey presto, come 2020 with a Republican in the White House, and that may be a significant point, everything's possible. In fact, the only objection, the only populist backlash they ever got was that the Fed wasn't doing enough. And in that, I, I actually kind of agree with Trump that the, the Fed was slow, really. They really put their foot on the gas in that second week. But I think the Fed maybe needed to have been more proactive a little bit earlier, to be honest. They were doing very conventional interest rate cutting type stuff. I think they needed repo facilities for the Treasury market a week to 10 days earlier. This is very inside baseball technical stuff. but. Trump was on them and saying, you need to do more, far, far more, quick, 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 more, more, more. Like, and he, there was not a whimper, not a word of objection about anything they ever did. So tick that box. Vaccines, totally different story, right? I mean, on the one hand, the triumph of American government and mobilization of resources. On the other hand, in so many respects, uh, a disaster, right? Or a near disaster, deliberate politicization, intrusion even into the testing regime, an utterly nationalist program, which was never designed, say, like the AstraZeneca program for all its problems, was designed to expand out to serum and go global. The mRNA programs were never designed that way. America pulled resources into the American program and supported transatlantic development at, in, in Germany, but didn't build a program of adequate scale which is what we really needed, right? We needed immediate trickle down of the production technology. The IP, the patents thing, I understand why people make a big political issue out of it, but I don't actually believe it's the main obstacle to large scale production, which is all about the transfer of know-how, which is not captured in the patents. And there was never that push. And then if you look at the contracts, it's again, it's, it's you know, that Mazzucato and all these people are absolutely right in the sense that we've handed essentially money two private entities um, to develop IP, which they then hold, which should, from the very beginning, it should have been clear that you're enrolled in this program. We should have really gone much more Beijing. There's no option. No one opts out. Like everyone's in. And you're doing this because you really don't want to be the people who didn't do this. And believe you, we will hurt you if you don't. And we want all of your resources and we want them all now. And no, you don't get to keep any of it as profit afterwards, right? We'll pay you an adequate rate of return, but you are not going to get, as it were, private IP that you can then surge charge whichever way you like. That's not how this is going to work. This is a regulated industry. We will guarantee a reasonable rate of return. And that's the basis on which you get stability because otherwise we're coming to get you with some nasty profit regulation two years from now. And your shareholders won't like that either, believe us. Because right? pharma is not exactly a boom sector in terms of valuation. And a big part of that is the uncertain politics. So the deal ought to be certain political stability in exchange for much closer, much more direct. That would be how, you know, you asked for an example of how one would do yep. this. That would be the way I think we would need to go in a much more hands on, explicit modulation of this entire relationship. Um, and those would be the two the two obvious areas. So then so then applying Applying that sort of framework to China, what, how do you how do you think about how China? I mean, China. I mean, you say there aren't any winners, but China sort of emerges in some ways as kind of a I mean, I don't know, a relative winner, probably. You know, okay, it was you know the, the, the virus started there, but but obviously contained it in a, in a dramatic way. 
probably much better than any other com- or than any other large country, avoided a really big sort of economic decline, supported things as necessary, and I think emerged. So you have a number in the book somewhere will emerge with an economy that, in relative terms, is 10% bigger than the, the other Western economies compared to where they were before the crisis. So it's, I don't know, do we look at this as some sort of, it seems like a success for Xi Jinping and for the Chinese Communist Party in terms of, at least in relative terms. Is it then an endorsement of that whole approach? And does that just sort of various other things flow from that? The first thing I need to say is like, it shouldn't have been this way, right? I mean, disaster yeah. okay. for the regime. They, they thought after SARS, they created a foolproof reporting system. Like, obviously, Beijing does not have an interest in things like Wuhan and Hubei happening regularly. I mean, like profoundly uninterested in that happening because it may be a repressive authoritarian regime that does not respect the human rights of its citizens. In fact, whether or not one should call them citizens is a, is a question, I think, because they are subjects, perhaps, of the regime. But it has an implicit and absolutely massive commitment to public health. I mean, it's really dramatic, right? I mean, persecute the, the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang on the one hand, and on the other hand, like the news of an infectious disease spreading through Chinese society is a shock. It's a society obsessed with health, right? And the regime is dedicated. It's one of the promises of the communist regime is that they overcame China's longstanding status as a source of disease and pandemics. This is a curse on a Chinese nation, which the communists have finally lifted. And they thought, therefore, with 2003, that they'd fixed this, that they had an upwards moving, you know, information chain that would ensure that Beijing was informed and it failed. And that, that's a disaster for them with huge problems. And they understand the incentives within the Communist Party and authoritarianism as well as anyone. Like, these are super smart people. They fully understand how it's difficult to get information up. And it's enormous. It's as though Latin America, North America and Europe were all bolted together into one political entity. And then we had a information change that led from Amazonia to headquarters, which are for sake of argument in Newfoundland or something. And that's supposed to work, right? Like, and of course, it doesn't most much of the time. Like it's incredibly difficult to manage that. And then the economic shock is by far and away the worst thing to have happened to the Chinese economy since the reform period began. Like hands down, the worst shock. And we, we say we skate over this. I'm a little sensitive to it because my, my wife has, is in the travel business. And the folks who say, well, we're all recovered, you know, we're back, we've bounced back. I always tend to think probably had secure jobs and didn't miss a paycheck. But if you're in one of those exposed sectors, it doesn't feel like that. It didn't feel like that. And you're still worried about 2022, like seriously worried. That's, you know, 30 to 40 percent of our household income hinges on whether or not Delta or Lambda kill everything next year. So and that's true, not just for us, that's true for the Chinese um, lower middle class, small businesses, tourism is huge within China. Every time they do one of these lockdowns, the tourism sector in China takes a hit. Like like for us, it's a very significant piece. It's far bigger than car making or, you know, let alone all of the extractive industries. There's this consistent like misunderstanding of what the modern economy is which we all know we shouldn't do and it's also gendered because these jobs tend to be women's jobs 
But the regime suffered a huge hit and they know it. And there was a rather agonized conversation. The, the conversation about inequality and poverty in China didn't start with, with Xi's speech a couple of weeks ago. It started with his prime minister raising the issue of how informal enterprises in Chinese cities might be a route to encourage the rapid recovery for, as he blurted out into the public, the 600 million Chinese who still live on incredibly modest incomes. Right? They've conquered absolute poverty in the direst mm -hmm. But they're fully aware of the fact that half the population, or just under half, lives in conditions which are not those of the affluent middle class in Shanghai. And they depend on various types of small scale, largely private service sector employment or you know, decentralized manufacturing, which is very hands on and person to person. And that sector has not bounced back like you know, the heavy industrial bit, which is captured in all of the data. So and, and yes, sure, in the end. And, and then, of course, from their point of view, so this is a disaster, a real crisis. The unbelievable thing is, as it were, the second half of the game starts. And in the second half of the game, after they've shipped, you know, three goals in the first half, the other team run down the pitch towards their own goal and proceed to spend 45 minutes firing balls into their own goal. For as long as they've got time to do it. Like, and, yeah. and then everyone says, you won. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we did. Funny kind of game. Yeah, we definitely did win. Like... No own goals on our side, <laughs> you know, of course there were, but only three, you guys managed to. So it's a sort of, yes, they come out of this stronger, um, especially domestically, I think, because, you know, how could they not? Look at the ratio of the dead to population. Yeah. They're very vulnerable because they haven't had Delta and they don't have much herd immunity and, and their vaccines aren't quite as good as ours. So they're very vulnerable, so they need to keep the lockdown. But the much bigger thing is the antagonism, right? The much bigger thing and it's in a sense, I think, from the outside, is that the antagonism of the West and the United States in particular towards China has just shifted. I mean, we thought we were in a trade war situation and you could do a you know, phase one deal and barter over soybeans, for heaven's sake, like, and Trump will be pleased and walk away and celebrate himself. And now, like, we're in this... We've never been here before. We should be really clear about this fact. Like this isn't the old Cold War because the Soviet Union wasn't deeply integrated with the Western's tech sector. No, Intel in the 70s didn't have to worry about whether its, ship, its chips were being used in Soviet appliances because they never had been and were going to be ever, 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 ever. And we're in a totally different world now, like where a company like Huawei has been reduced to releasing a 4G phone in the last couple of weeks. And just imagine if in the West, our latest generation of smartphones was basically being remote control. I mean, the limits of what we could have was being dictated by Beijing. And that's the way it'll impact on the street, right? In terms of the strategic analysis by the Chinese leadership, it's much, much more grievous than that because they're, you know, they're seeing a flat out assault on their national economic development at its leading edge. Deliberate, explicit and with clear geopolitical intent. That's not something we've ever seen before. No, that's going to be very interesting. No, I, Adam, we could talk for hours, <laughs> but I should probably let you go. It's been fascinating as ever. And thank you for taking the time. And I guess given that, you know, sort of the last book was, was the 2008 crisis and this is the COVID crisis, maybe we should hope that it will be a little while before <laughs> you, you produce the yeah. next episode. <laughs> Here's for <to> that. <laughs> But thank you very much and, and, and good luck with uh, good luck with the book. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lam and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Acast. <laughs>
Also, you can check out our views at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.